There we go. Oh, well. What a difference that makes. That's like the power of the Spirit. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit tonight. Okay. St. Isaac Jogues and St. John de Berbeuf. Uh, and so they have other companions like St. John Lalamont. Uh, <clears throat> but they are what we call the North American martyrs. They are amazing saints. So, really quickly, brief story about them. I want to say, and someone correct me, Brock, John, somebody, Miranda, tell me if you know more than me. I didn't look up their dates. It's like 17th century, roughly. So 1600s. And what they, they're all, what, what, what nation are they from? Jogues and Brebeuf. Yes, that's right. They're French saints. Thank you, Morgan. Do you want to like divide those in half and pass out the? They can. You don't have to pass them all out. They can like take one and pass it. Okay. So these guys, they were Jesuits. So Saint Ignatius of Loyola founded this community called the Society of Jesus. for the Church, and we want to be priests of God, and we want to convert the world. So, how many, have you guys ever seen the movie The Mission? Okay, you are the only cool guy at RCIA. What's your name again? John. John, you are awesome. The rest of you are lame. If you have not seen The Mission, it's, it, it's an awesome movie. There are mixed messages about the church in that movie, but nevertheless, great movie. You should watch The Mission. It has, um, oh, I'm going to forget their names, Jeremy Irons and who's the other big one? Robert De Niro, yeah. Okay, and it's about this time frame. And it's about when the Jesuits were coming to the new world to spread the gospel. So here's what happened with these two. So they're Frenchmen, and they join the Jesuits. They become priests, and they say, we want to give our lives for Jesus. We want to give our lives for the church. And what happens is they get sent to North America. And they're over here, and they go up into Canada and upstate New York. It wasn't known as that yet. And... They're, they're in that area, and they're evangelizing um, different Native American tribes, and they're bringing the gospel to them. What happens is, I forget the name of the tribe they were originally with, but they were there, and things went very, very well. They were going really, really well. And then one of the Iroquois nations, I think it was the Mohawks, they were on a canoe kind of just expedition, and... St. Isaac Jogues, who's one of my favorite saints, was captured. And what happens is, so the, the Mohawks take him, and along with others, and he's brought to one of their, you know, their camps. And Isaac Jogues is a priest, and what happens is when they would capture prisoners, what they did, it's a brutal, brutal story. But what they did is when they captured you, you would run the gauntlet. And so they stripped you naked. And then you would run down in between these two rows of people who all had sticks and branches and rocks and clubs. And they would just beat the snot out of you. And so he has to run that a couple times. And then they tied him to a post along with others. And I, this is a little graphic, so forgive me. But then they chewed off his fingers um, up to the knuckle. 
And, okay, so what happens, Isaac jokes, he escapes because they're the, the Mohawks are trading with the Dutch and a Dutch kind of expeditionary, whatever, tradesman, he sees that there's a French priest and he works to, to, to get him to escape. So Isaac, Isaac jokes, escapes, he goes back to France and in those days they didn't have the internet and, but they had a newsletter they sent back from North America to Europe and literally for probably like, like a year or something like that, all the newsletters said, Father Isaac has disappeared. We have no idea where he is. We assume he's dead. So he comes back. Sorry, I get, I get emotional. The story is so powerful. He goes back to France. And in, in canon law, for a priest to be able to say mass, you have to have all of your fingers fully intact. And so the, the St. Isaac jokes then wouldn't be, have been able to say Mass. So he had to write to the Pope to ask a special permission to celebrate the Mass. And there's a famous letter, where I forget who the Pope was at that time, but the Pope writes and he says, Who am I to deny the sacraments to Christ's living saints? Amazing. So Isaac jokes, it happens. He goes through all this, and in Europe, he's a, he's a celebrity. He's this huge celebrity. Like, kings and queens want them to come live with him, th- them. He's asked to speak all over the place, and he can't stand it. He absolutely hates it. So, a couple years later, he asks his superior in the Jesuits to go back. Which is the really powerful part of the story. Right? If that were me, I'm like, I would, be, you know what I would say? I'd be like, man, find me a spa. <laughs> but he asked to go back. He couldn't stand the attention and all those things. So anyway, so they agree. So Isaac Joes goes back to North America. And what, what I didn't tell you is that during the time he was with St. John de Brebeuf, he used to wait, he was just this very holy man. And he used to wake up in the middle of the night and he would actually pray that if it was God's will, that he would be allowed to die a martyr for the good of the people there. And when he asked to go back to Europe, that this is the, the coolest thing, or not to Europe, to North America, if I, if I had someone, you know, capture me as a prisoner of war, beat the snot out of me, chew off my fingers, I would most likely hate the Isaac Jogues asked to go back because he loved the people who had abused him and he wanted them to become Christians. So not only did he go back to North America, he asked to go back to the Mohawks. And he did. And he went and he offered himself as a slave to them and as a witness. So, long story short, at the end of the day, he wanted to offer a witness of love. And eventually what happened is one of the, the men of the tribe was angry with him and just picked up a tomahawk and right in the back of the head and martyred him. Um, tremendous. And then one real quick word on St. John de Brebeuf, maybe even the greater saint of the North American martyrs. John de Brebeuf, did we talk about him? No. Okay, I, you know, I've said this. I talk every single day 
So I, like, I have no idea what I've told you. John de Brebeuf, similar, he was in the same group. He couldn't get into religious orders because he had a lot of health problems originally. But eventually he gets into the Jesuits and he becomes the leader of this group in North America. Very holy man, again, did amazing things his whole life, full of love and faith and hope. But the thing that happened to him is he was, he was captured as well, and I forget by a different tribe, but somehow he was captured. I'd have to look it up. And he was so filled with love, he would preach the gospel. He died, he was burned at the stake. And he, just like Jesus, right, as he dies, he prays for those who are killing him. And the Native Americans were so impressed by his love and by his courage that one of the things some tribes believed is that if you ate the organs of someone, you would gain their virtues. So they ripped out his heart and ate his heart because they were so impressed by his courage and they desired to have it. Um, but what makes them great saints, right, isn't that bad things happen to them. What made them great saints was that they were willing to go through awful things because they loved God and they loved others. You can go to their shrine. Their shrine is, there's the Shrine of North American Martyrs. I have not been yet. I plan to go someday. Uh, it's, it's in a place called Orisville, New York. It's in upstate New York. And it's a big pilgrimage site in the United States. That's so cool. This means yes. This means no. Doesn't it make you feel like you're totally soft and weak? Yes, it does. And every time I complain, I'm like, oh, Lord, my parish is so hard. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, these guys prayed to be, like, brutally martyred. Okay. <laughs> Questions from Eucharist, and then we're going to talk about confirmation and confession. So, I mean, any questions from our uh, time talking about the Eucharist? And again, if you have a question, other people are going to have it. And we could spend years talking about the Eucharist. It's, it's sad that we only spend about three classes or so. Oh, good. So, people, you'll see in Mass sometimes, people will walk up like this. And what that means is that they, they don't feel like they're in a state of grace, meaning that Maybe they have a state of serious sin, or they're not Catholic yet. But it, it basically just tells the priest or the Eucharistic minister that they're not going to receive the Eucharist. And so if you're ever in a place where you're like, you know what, I've, I have kind of a serious sin that I'm dealing with, and I'm not going to receive the Eucharist, if you just cross your arms, that's like the universal symbol in the church for the priest to just pray a prayer of blessing over you. Does that make sense? So don't do that. Like, you know, we talked about Eucharistic heresies or like when you're going to receive the Eucharist last week. Remember that? One of the things that's really confusing is sometimes people will do that, but then they're like, and I'm like, I don't know how to help you. Right? Okay, other questions about the Eucharist? Yes. Right. Yeah. 
so if so the question just if you didn't hear that if an evangelical christian says well jesus would never deny the eucharist to christians right we're all christians shouldn't we all be able to receive the eucharist how do you answer that there's there's a a bunch of different ways um a couple i would make is the first one is in first corinthians 11 saint paul says that so give the exact verse So 1 Corinthians 11:27 St. Paul says this. He says whoever eats the bread and this is after he's been talking about the Eucharist since the beginning of chapter 10 basically. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. So the first point is this, is that Paul doesn't think it's a symbol. Paul thinks if you, are un, if you eat of the Eucharist or drink of the, the precious blood in an unworthy way, and I know that doesn't answer the question yet, but we'll get to it, that you sin against the body and blood of Christ. The, the, the first thing that should tell us is that like, if, it, if that's a symbol, that makes no sense. Makes no sense. Okay, so then the next verse, verse 28. Let a man examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So Paul says, if you eat the Eucharist without discerning the body, If you do that, Paul says you, and, and listen to that language. Sometimes when we, you know, when we get in talks with people, we don't listen to each other, right? You know, like if, you, if you're debating with someone you disagree with, you know how you like, you don't listen to them and you just think of the next thing you can say that's better with the, than what they can say? Don't do that, right? That's not a real conversation. And what you want to do is you want to get people to just slow down And Paul says if they do that, they eat and drink judgment upon themselves. I don't want to spell it all out. And and the thing I would first say is just like, just to start the conversation, this is a great verse for that, is just to say, that's really serious. Paul very rarely, I mean, that's not entirely true, Paul does use language like that, but that's serious language. And our evangelical brothers and sisters, their big thing is the Bible. Right? That's, that's the big thing. Well, that's straight out of Scripture. So that's the first thing. The second thing, and you could do this different ways. There's, there's 10 different ways you could, you could skin this cat. But, like in 1 Corinthians 6, so, and maybe, and without memorizing the Bible, because when I answer that way, you're like, I could never answer that because I don't know what's in 1 Corinthians 6. Here's the easier way to do it. Think about the word communion, right? And there's two ways I would do this, actually. The first way is this. The word communion means that we're in communion with God, and they're saying, well, I'm in communion with God. But it also means that we're in communion with the Catholic Church. 
And that's what scripture teaches. That's what the Catholic Church believes. And so if you're not in communion with the Catholic Church, that's okay. I mean, I don't really think it's, I hope to change that, you know. But it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean you're going to hell, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're not in communion, you shouldn't, you should be honest about that. Right? You should be honest about that. And I'm going to forget the second thing I was going to say. Um, oh, that's it. So here's, here's, the, and here's the bigger thing maybe is, I don't need to write it, actions speak louder than words. So if you guys become Catholic, if you go to an evangelical church and they have a communion service, you go with a friend, it's okay to go with a friend, you still have to go to Mass on Sunday. But if you say, I went to Mass and I just can't get enough of this stuff, I'll go with my friend to their evangelical church. And if they have communion, here's the thing, we do not believe the same thing as they do about communion. Actions speak louder than words. And so if you're a Catholic, you should never receive communion in a non-Catholic church unless you're in danger of death and then it could be in an Orthodox church. But the odds of that happening are like 0.0000001%. So you should never receive communion somewhere outside the Catholic church. Why? Because they believe something radically different than what we believe. Here's a parallel example. We haven't talked about this yet. But if I show up in my collar, people ask me to do this, by the way, um, because my collar, right, it, it kind of says something, doesn't it? Without me even speaking, it says something. So people want me to go to things like, they want me to do funerals for people who aren't Catholics, which is probably, it's debatably, you could possibly do it. Not a mass. But anyway, here, here's the example. Imagine if someone invites me to a gay marriage, to a gay wedding between two men, right? And let's say like one of them, like my uncle has same-sex attraction. So if my uncle invites me and he gets married and he says, Brian, I want you to come. Now, if I go and let's say I don't say anything, I never say anything the whole time. I just sit there. I just watch. Does my presence there say something? What does it say? How are people, what will people think it says? See, I think it means I approve. I think when a priest shows up at something like that, people interpret that to say something. And, and it's, it's like a sign of support. And so for that reason, and I, I shouldn't have probably brought that example up, we'll talk about that, but... For that reason, I would never, and there's more reasons, I would never go to a same-sex wedding, ever. So in the same way, with communion, what I would tell an evangelical is, you don't believe the same thing as we do. You believe it's a symbol, take it or leave it. If you never, ever have communion, it doesn't matter, because all that matters is faith. For a Catholic, this is everything. This is Jesus himself. This is what creates the church. This is the one sacrifice that forgives all sins and redeems the world. This is everything. And if you don't believe that, that's okay. But when people all explain this at weddings, at weddings I'll say, if you're not a Catholic, we're so glad you're here. Come up and cross your arms or if you want to stay in your pew. And you'll get non-Catholics who will come up and they're like, that priest is not going to tell me what to do. And they don't say that to me. But you can kind of tell that's the attitude. 
And boy, does that piss me off. Seriously, almost more than anything, because I'm like, this is, you're not a Catholic. You may not agree with me, but this is a Catholic church. And my thing is like, I do not go to your house and do whatever the hell I want to do. There are things that are sacred. There are beliefs of other people. And we should respect the beliefs of other people. We don't have to agree with them. But anyway, that was like way too much. (laughs) Welcome to every RCIA ever. (laughs) Okay, any last questions about the Eucharist? We got to keep moving. Yeah. Yes, you're supposed to fast one hour before you receive the Eucharist. Does God care that you don't eat before you receive the Eucharist? No. But here's why. Jesus, in Matthew 4, right, he says that we're supposed to hunger for every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's a symbolic action. And so what it is, is that when you don't eat an hour before Mass, before you receive the Eucharist, it reminds me And by the way, if I ever scandalize you, priests, after their first Mass, they're allowed to break that rule after their first Mass. So people will see me before the 11 a.m. and I'm like chowing down. They're like, right? But I'm not breaking the rules, I promise. So anyway, the reason we do that is because it's supposed to remind us. You say, oh my gosh, I'm really hungry. And you're supposed to say, wow, I'm supposed to hunger not just for physical things, but I want to hunger for the Eucharist. I want to hunger for Christ. So we do physical things that are supposed to remind us of spiritual things. Does that make sense? Yeah, Lauren. It's an hour before you receive, which means at Lord's you can eat right up to the time Mass starts. <laughs> yeah. It used to be, and you can thank the church for this, it used to be 12 hours so they didn't used to have evening masses because you would not eat, you would, have, you, would eat, you would stop eating the night before and you'd have 12 hours before you received the Eucharist. But the church said, we're kind of missing the point. The point isn't about how long you fast. The point is about, are you hungry for Jesus? Okay, anybody else? Okay, let's talk about confirmation. Have we talked about confirmation? No? Okay, we should have, because... So confirmation is actually the sacrament that that properly comes before the Eucharist. I don't know what to... Like, God bless you. I don't know, like, what to say for a hiccup, you know? (laughs) You got to receive a blessing either way, I guess, right? Um, So... The sacraments really go baptism, then confirmation, and then Eucharist. And the point that the church wants us to see with this and is that these two, and in fact all of the sacraments, all of them lead to the Eucharist. The whole point of Christianity Everything we do, every single little rule from the hour fast before the Eucharist to like not having sex outside of marriage, everything we teach in the Catholic Church has as its goal communion. Absolutely everything. 
The whole purpose of Christianity, the reason God became a man, the reason he died and rose again, was so that you would have communion with him. And I don't just mean the Eucharist, that, that, I do mean that, but it, right, communion, that word, koinonia in Greek, right, is like, it's like what we think of when, you, when you're in love with someone or a very profound friendship. A communion is a, a sharing. Right? It's a communion with someone else. It's an entering into someone else's life and their life into yours. And isn't that the deepest desire of every heart? Right? God made you for that. So everything in the Catholic Church, everything we ever do, is supposed to lead to this. Absolutely everything. And if you get that, you'll be a better Catholic. So confirmation, what is confirmation? Um, are there any extra handouts? Here, we got extras. Thank you. Okay. So we're not going to read too many of these, but let's start with the story of Pentecost. Here's, here's the thing. What confirmation means, it's a Latin word, and it, it means to strengthen. confirmation. It means to strengthen in Latin. <clears throat> and what it is, what confirmation is, is the strengthening of all the graces you receive at baptism. Okay, Catholics, you, those of you who are already Catholic, when you think of confirmation, what event in the Bible do we usually think about? Pentecost, right? So I want to talk about Pentecost and why this is so important. And this is so cool. This is going to like blow your mind, right? Okay, so right on your sheet says Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and wondered, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia. Don't you love Pamphylia? Whenever that comes up in the readings, I'm like, I love Pamphylia. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Okay, so much here. So here we go. So, Acts 2, verse 1, St. Luke wrote Acts of the Apostles, the guy who wrote the Gospel of St. Luke, same guy. 
He's a companion of St. Paul. And in that very first verse, he says, On the day of Pentecost. Now, see if you can read my mind. Here's a terrible question. There's something really weird about the way he says that. Why is it weird that he says it that way? Because why? Um, no, it's not. It is. It's really just one day. It's connected to another. I know what you're getting at, and I'll get there in a second. Yeah. Good. That's what I'm getting at. He names the event before it happens, but not really. That's what we all think, right? Because when you hear Pentecost, here's the first thing we all need to know. When you hear the word Pentecost, all of us think that that was originally a Christian feast. But it was a Jewish feast. So in your favorite chapter in mine, Leviticus 23, God, God outlines seven feasts that the Jews are to observe. And one of them is called Pentecost, where the Jews call it the Feast of Weeks. So here's what Pentecost is. And this is going to help us understand all of this. This is one of those things I was, I sent an email today to Miranda's sister, actually. And I was, I finally followed through. And she was asking me some questions. And I was talking about how Jesus takes, right, the Old Testament realities. And he doesn't destroy them. He redefines them. Right? He, he elevates and transforms them, right? So we've talked about this, right? There was a Moses in the Old Testament. Jesus is a new Moses, but he's exalted and transformed that image, right? There was manna in the Old Testament. There's manna in the New Testament. There was a temple in the Old Testament. There's a temple in the New Testament. There was a Davidic king in the Old Testament. There's a new David in the New Testament. There was an Adam in the Old Testament. There's a new Adam in the New Testament, right? There was an Eve. There's a new Eve. These things are exalted, they're elevated, and they're transformed. So there was Pentecost in the Old Testament. Does anybody know what Pentecost celebrates? Do you know, Brock? Oh, I'm going to call your dad. Pentecost, I know I'm such a jerk. <laughs> Pentecost, so what it is, so what, what does penta imply? Five, right? But what, the, what, the, what this is, is it's 50. And this is, we'll get to why it's the Feast of Weeks. Is that this counts 50 days from the Passover. And 50 days from Passover, the Jews receive the law at Mount Sinai. And so, for the Jews, the Feast of Pentecost is the feast of when God gave the law. Now, there's so many cool things. Are you guys awake tonight? I'm like, I'm worried that I'm going to bore you. Hang with me. This is so cool. This is so awesome, right? Just think of it this way. You're never again in your life going to have a priest talking to you about Pentecost and flip-flops with a Abbey beer, right? You're going to be like, oh, man, I miss those days, 
Okay, 50 days, right? Good point. The reason they call it the Feast of Weeks is because for the Jews, the Passover, or I'm sorry, Pentecost is a week of weeks. Seven times seven is 49, and the crown is the 50th day. So that's why they call it the Feast of Weeks. It's a week of weeks from Passover to Pentecost. Okay, so here we go. This is so cool. So at the first Pentecost, the Jews received the law. They're at Mount Sinai. Now let me ask you this. How does God appear at Mount Sinai? What is it like when he shows up? Close, that's in Exodus 3. It's connected to that. In Exodus 3, there's a burning bush. This is Exodus 19 and 20. God, they're at Mount Sinai, and God descends on Mount Sinai in a cloud of Say it again. Fire. So at Sinai, God shows up with fire. Right? And Jesus, right, has the Last Supper on what day? What Jewish feast? Passover. It's been 50 days, so Luke... At the beginning of of Acts chapter 1, he says, on the day of Pentecost, it has been 50 days since the redemption of the new Israel, the church, when Jesus goes to the cross. And guess who's going to show up in fire? So cool. Gets better. Here's the real key. So Pentecost for Jews is all about the law. And they celebrate the giving of the law. So look at your next quote on your sheet. Bottom of that page, the front page. So this is Romans chapter 8. It says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now here's what I really want you to hear. Verse 4. Hear this. So God sent his Son to die in the flesh. Why? in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's just pause there. Let's read that one more time. I've read this verse like a hundred times, and I forget that maybe you guys haven't. So let's read that one more time. Back to verse 4. Right, so God sent his son to die in the flesh. Why? In order that the just requirement of the law, what law is that, by the way? That's right. It's the law of God, the Mosaic law, might be fulfilled in us. Right? Notice how he doesn't say, God sent his son so we don't have to obey the law. He doesn't say that. He said, God sent his son in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, 
but according to the Spirit. Okay, so hang with me. We're going to do two last things here. We're going to tie this together and we're going to show you one more thing. There's a phrase that the early church fathers used to say a lot. And it was very common in their time to repeat this. Can't write tonight. Okay, sorry I read that kind of fast, so if it's hard to read. So the early Christians, they love to repeat this phrase. The law, and whenever you hear the law, this doesn't mean like President Trump passed a law banning tariffs, you know, like creating tariffs on Russia. Like that's not, that's not what this is. The law is the Jewish law. So why? So the question is, why did God give us a law? Why did he give like the Ten Commandments and this long law? And the answer that the church fathers give is the law was given that grace might be sought. What does that mean? If you've ever tried to live, if you've read the Old Testament, if you try to live to God's law, what you find out very quickly is it's very, very difficult. And if you read the Old Testament, what you find out is that the Jews couldn't do it. It was too hard. And so what the church fathers are doing here is they're summing up what St. Paul really says about this. In Romans 8, but in 2 Corinthians 2 and 3, in Romans chapter 2, in Colossians, I mean, all over the place. God wanted us to say, Lord, I can't do this on my own, I need you. So the law was given that grace might be sought. Grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. This is so powerful. And this is what Pentecost, this is what confirmation is about. Confirmation is a sacrament, is the fullness of the life of the Holy Spirit living in you. Let me say that again. Confirmation is the fullness of the life of the Spirit living in you. Another word for that is grace. All right, so Christianity, we, we've said this about a hundred times, but let's say it for the hundred and first. Christianity is not Trinity check. Uh, Jesus is God, check. Resurrection, check. Eucharist, check. Don't commit adultery, check. That's not Christianity. That's what everybody thinks it is, but that's not Christianity. 
Christianity is God living inside of you. That's Christianity. And if you try to live the Christian life on your own without the grace of God, it's impossible. You can't do it. So that's why, you know, we've been walking through the, the pillars of the catechism. And the catechism, right, we've talked about the logic. What's the first pillar of the catechism? This is where you make me feel like a good RCIA teacher. What's the first pillar of the catechism? Creed. The second one is universally sacraments. Good job. I'm so proud of you. The third one is morality. And the fourth is prayer. Here's the thing. So, so notice this. Sacraments come before morality. Why? Because God doesn't love you because you have your act together. He loves you because he's good. And that's, that's the creed. And then the sacraments is that you actually can't even fully live this. You, the, the, if you read the morality of the New Testament, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Right? Uh, if anyone, uh, do not expect anyone to, uh, or if anyone takes your cloak, give him your tunic also. Right? Love others um, as you love yourself. How do you do that? If God lives inside of you. That's what confirmation is. And so the church understands that it's not just law, brothers and sisters, right? It's that I can't do that, right? I'm not going to lie to you. I, I apologize to Father Mike tonight, right before class. I was like, I was like, dude, I've been the biggest jerk. And it's totally true. The only way I can really live what Jesus asks of me is not by my effort. It's when he lives inside of me. Right, great question. How do you know if he lives inside of you? Is it, there's a little tingle by your spleen. Um, no. So there's a both and. It's, that's a wonderful question. Um, so the, the St. John would say, the way we know that God dwells inside of us is that we love each other. Right, in John 13, Jesus is going to say, love one another as I have loved you. This is the new commandment I give you. And the early Christians were famous for that, that we know that the love of God dwells in us if we love the brothers. And brothers in Greek means brothers and sisters. So if we love each other, that's the sign. There is, there is an experience of the Spirit. I will tell you in my life, there is an experience of a transformed heart. But you got to be careful with that. Because being, being in the Spirit doesn't mean like all of a sudden you're just walking around going like, man, I am just so happy. Like, 
I got cut off. I got hit by a car today. The, the IRS is investigating me. I love everybody. It's amazing, right? That's not it, right? Like, but there is a joy and a peace in the Spirit. But more profoundly, right, it's that we love God and we love others. Yeah, Katie. Agreed. <laughs> I agree that it's cool. Well, there's some distinctions there, but let's just say that for now. Right. Yeah. You're setting me up so perfectly. I love it. Say it again. Keep going. Yeah, so, so why didn't Jesus talk about the Spirit earlier? <clears throat> so St. John is going to talk about how one of the main reasons Jesus dies on the cross, and, the, and if you want some good reading on this, you have to read it carefully. This is the hard thing about Scripture, right? I've been studying Scripture for about 20 years, and I like to flatter myself and think at a fairly high level, and it's not easy. And so you're, you can't just go to the Bible and, you know, it's like, oh, you know, Galatians 3. Unless you live in the Holy Spirit, your life sucks and God hates you, right? It doesn't say that. It's much more intricate and subtle. But um, St. John's going to say that one of the main reasons, and Paul says this in Galatians 3, is that one of the main reasons Christ died on the cross is so that the Holy Spirit would fall on us. Um, so let's flush this out a little bit. And here's, what I wanted to, here's the other thing I wanted to show you all tonight on confirmation. So St. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts of the Apostles. Very clear. He wrote both of those. We've always known that. Um, and he actually even tells us, the beginning of Acts, the very first verses of Acts, he says this. Uh, in the first book, O Theophilus, which is a word, Greek word, the Greek name that means lover of God, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commandment through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Luke begins, he says, hey, remember that first book I wrote? This is what I wrote about. Now you can write about this. So in, in Luke's gospel, there's even more than this, but this is so cool. Luke's gospel begins, and in the beginning of Luke's gospel, there are, um, there's a priest. Do you remember who's the priest at the beginning of Luke's gospel? I know these are so hard. I am like, it's, it's Zechariah, who's the father of John the Baptist. So there's a priest at the very beginning of the gospel. 
And he's chosen to go into the temple. Does anybody know how is he chosen to go into the temple? Good job, Lauren. Yeah. So he's chosen by lot. It's kind of like dice. Think of dice. And he's chosen by lot to go into the, into the temple. Well, guess what? Guess what happens at the very beginning of Acts of the Apostles? The apostles cast lots to choose a new priest. His name is Matthias, and he replaces Judas as one of the 12 apostles. And they choose him by lot. So there's this priest, he's chosen by lot. And then in the beginning of Luke's gospel, Jesus, right, when Jesus comes on the scene, What's the first scene that really launches Jesus into like, he's, he's, okay, he's here, he's ready to go, he's going to go on his mission. What's the first scene in Jesus' life that we kind of see? Right, we get the baptism of Jesus. And what happens at Jesus' baptism? Yeah, the Holy Spirit falls, right? The heavens are opened and the Holy Spirit falls on Christ. Guess what? This isn't Galatians 3. This is Acts 1. So this is Luke. This is Acts. The beginning of Acts, guess what happens? And St. Luke actually uses this language. Jesus does. So in Acts 1 verse 5, Verse 4 says, While Jesus was with them, he charged them not to leave from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but before many days you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, guess what? Jesus calls Pentecost. The day that the church is going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, hang on, this is so cool. I just love this. So, after this, Jesus goes on mission. And he's going to go out to save Israel and all the world, to proclaim the gospel, to live the truth to bring people to God, right? And guess what? Guess what's going to happen in Acts of the Apostles? The church is going to go on mission to preach the gospel, to bring people closer to God, and to bring salvation to all the world. And there's all these parallels. So here, here's the thing I want you to see with this. What it means to be a Christian is not, I believe these 27 teachings I don't kill anybody and therefore I skate into heaven without going to hell and I still have my eyebrows, hopefully. That is not Christianity, but I think most people think that's what Christianity is. And that's what I thought it was for a long time. What St. Luke wants us to see and what the Catholic Church has always, 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 always taught is that the church and you 
right? If you were going to be a real Christian, not a Christian who goes through the motion, a real Christian, you're going to be a real Christian, guess what you're going to be? You are going to be Christ in the world right now. Right? Jesus is not someone who just lived 2,000 years ago. Right? People encounter the church, they encounter Christ. Right? They meet Mother Teresa and they say, oh my gosh, I feel like I just was with Jesus. They're with John Paul II and they say, I feel like I was just with Jesus. Right? Even people who aren't canonized saints, right? Like Father Drendel, who lived next to me for four years in seminary, I would just go sit in his room with him and I was like, I was just with Jesus. Because it felt that way. Why? Because God doesn't want you just to believe things. He wants to live inside of you, which is what the sacraments are all about. That's confirmation. Cap's not even on. Okay. <laughs> two minute break. <laughs> we'll start up in two minutes. All right. Get a, get a glass of water. Okay, folks, let's keep going because I just get nervous about we're getting close to Easter. Two last things about Pentecost and, and confirmation that I just want you to see really quick before we jump to confession. Um, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, at the foot of Mount Sinai, in Jewish tradition, at the foot of Mount Sinai, when God gives the law to the Jews, they consider that the moment when Israel becomes a nation. So you could say that the moment that Israel is instituted. And, and it's really interesting. It's the first time in the Bible there's a Hebrew word there, kahal, which could be translated assembly. So Pentecost is it's the feast of the giving of the law, but it's also the, the day that the Jews consider that God created the nation of Israel. There were tribes before that. You know, you, you have Abraham, you have Isaac and Jacob, but this is the moment it becomes a nation. So in the New Testament, right, and Pentecost, the church believes that the birthday of the church, there's kind of a couple, but probably the most common answer if you ask when is the birthday of the church is Pentecost. The birth of the church. The Greek word for church, where we get the word church, is ecclesia. Looks like that. Ecclesia is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word kahal. And in the, even before the time of Christ, when the Old Testament is translated into Greek, when, when the Jews translate this word, kahal, into Greek, the word they use is ecclesia, which is the word church. So you see, God, I, ah, how can anyone not be Catholic? I don't understand. I really don't. I don't get it. But, but this, is, this is it, right? God takes Old Testament realities, but they were always in view of what he was going to do in his son, right? And, and do you see also, God, it's not about you and God. It's not about you and God. It is not about you and God. It's not about you and God. It is about us together and God. Yes, you had to have a relationship with God. Absolutely. But that relationship is not isolated. It is part of an assembly of those God calls out of the world to be his presence on earth. Last thing before we jump to confession is that 
one of the, the themes the church has always believed about this is that, that Pentecost reverses something in the Old Testament. Tower of Babel, right? So in Genesis chapter 11, right, the, the people come together and they're building a tower. And if we could spend an hour on this, we would. But they build a tower and they're actually rebelling against God. If you read Genesis 11 closely, they're rebelling against God. And so God comes down and the languages are scattered. So Babel, the Tower of Babel is a place of division. And by the way, again, if you're, if you're coming from another Christian tradition, it doesn't mean that that's bad, but division is bad. Right? Jesus in Gethsemane, he says, Father, I pray that, though, that my followers, that they might be one, even as you and I are one. Division is a scandal to non-Christians. Right? It says they can't even get along with themselves. How am I supposed to be a Christian? Right? There's 40,000 different Christian denominations. How am I supposed to be a Christian? How am I supposed to know if I'm supposed to be Methodist or Presbyterian or non-denominational or Catholic or uh, Armenian Orthodox? Right? How am I supposed to do that? Well, Pentecost right, is the opposite of this. The birth of the church is where all the different languages on earth are heard in they're all united, right? The apostles speak and all the different nations listening to them, each of them hears in their own language. And again, ancient Christians, bishops and priests, we have homilies where they preach about this and they say, this is the Catholic faith. It's universal. It is proclaimed in Latin and Greek, right? In Hebrew, in every language of the earth, but it's one. It is one message in all the different languages. Oh, man, is that good stuff. Okay. All right, quick question. Any, we have time for like one or two quick questions when we do confession. Ben. Right. Yeah, it's not like a nation state. It's more like a people. Maybe it would be a better way to say it. Right? Yeah, they're like a, a unified people. And they're also big enough. They get to a point where they're big enough where they're not just tribes. Right? Something like that. Any other questions? I know, you're just like mind blown. I can't even think. Okay. Let's talk about everyone's favorite sacrament. Confession. Some of you have been like, we have been waiting for this for like, you know, the last four years of RCIA. Thank you, finally. Okay. Confession is so, so, so awesome. So let's set the context for it. Here's the thing, if you're going to understand confession, the first thing we got to do is you got to understand, 
you have to, the Catholic mindset is very different than if you're coming from a Protestant or evangelical background. Our basic spirit of how we do things and how we understand things is pretty different. We've been talking a little bit about that tonight. But here's, here's the, the context. So if you're coming from an evangelical or a Protestant background, you're used to the emphasis being on my relationship with God. Right? That's, that's kind of the way that that's, that's what's emphasized, is my relationship with God. Which is a good thing, but it's not the only thing. So, here's what we got to get to. The scandal of Catholicism is not that God has authority, it's that he shares authority. The scandal of Catholicism is not that God has authority, it's that he shares authority. So this is really pretty simple, but think about this. So I think we've done this before, but again, I preach every day, I teach every day. So I don't know. Okay, so God shares his authority. So let's just talk about that. So in Genesis chapter one, it's a good place to start. Genesis 1, God names things, right? God, uh, um, he says, let there be light. Uh, God saw the light and he saw that it was good. And God called the darkness, or I'm sorry, the light, day. And the darkness he called night, right? So he does that for all of the creation story. So all Genesis 1, God is going to name things. Then in Genesis, in the same chapter, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God says, let us make man in our image and our likeness. And if we had more time, we would go deeper into this. But man and woman are the, light, the image and likeness of God in creation, which means that we're, we share his authority. I mean, I look like him, but not again. <laughs> I know that you read that and you're like, you ever like wake up and you're like, read Genesis 126, you're like, man, God is a good looking God. <laughs> no, that's not what it means. God doesn't have a body, so he doesn't, he doesn't like look like you. Um, and again, I could go deep off a tangent on that. But anyway, so Genesis 1, he does that. In Genesis 2, right, very next chapter, God takes all the animals and he marches them in front of Adam. You know what Adam does? He gives them names. So in Genesis 2, Adam actually shares in the role of God in creation. And there's all kinds of language in Genesis that's all about this. Paul's going to pick this up in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, he uses the word dominion like eight times. And he's talking about how Adam and Eve had this dominion. They had authority. But they lost it through sin and it's restored in Christ. It's kind of what Romans 5 is about. Okay. So God shares that role with Adam. Okay, the next thing. We'll do this one quick. I don't have to write all these things down. So God loves to share his authority. So, easy things, right? Um, in Exodus chapter 3, God, that's the burning bush, Moses shows up, right? And he says, Moses, take off your sandals for the ground on which you are standing is holy. 
So Moses kicks off his sandals and God is going to send him to free the Jews. Now, this is the, the, the very easy question. Did God need Moses to free the Jews? No, of course not. He's God. He can do anything. Right? He is the one who created light out of darkness, who speaks his word and things exist. Right? He doesn't need anyone. I know you think you're kind of a big deal. You are. But he doesn't need you. Right? God is omnipotent, all-powerful. Okay, but he does. Right? And then in the same chapter, Moses' excuse, all the prophets make excuses when, they, when God calls them. And when God calls you, that's what you're going to do. God's going to be like, I want you to go be a missionary, you know. And you're like, I just came down with a cold, you know. Uh, they all come with excuses. Moses has an excuse. Do you remember what Moses' excuse is? He stutters. So how does God, so if I were God and Moses said, I can't go, I stutter, I would be like, all right, Moses will no longer stutter, right? What does God do? He does encourage him, but he gives him someone. He gives him his brother Aaron. Why does God do this? Because God loves communion. And so God actually, Moses, as far as we know, Moses stuttered the rest of his life. And I think that is so beautiful. But he gave him his brother Aaron. He said, Aaron will be your spokesperson. Yeah, in the back, there's a question. No, okay. Um, Well, I, I, we, we know that, as far as we know, Moses stuttered the rest of his life. Why does God do that? He loves communion, right? And I think that's so beautiful because God doesn't just, when you become a Christian, God isn't going to fix your problems. You're not going to be like, okay, God, I became Catholic now. Now you make my hair grow back. He's not going to do that, right? And if you're a jerk right now and you become Catholic, you're still going to be a jerk when you become Catholic. But he's going to send you people to know that you're loved, right? And to send you on mission together. That's what he does. Okay, so God doesn't need that. What's the definition of a prophet? What's a prophet? Yeah, that's usually the people answer people give. Is someone who sees in the future? Sometimes they can, but that's actually not the definition. It's more broad than that. Prophet is someone who speaks for God. Who's God's spokesperson? Now, here's the obvious question. We've already asked this, right? Does God need someone to speak for him? No. Of course not. Of course he doesn't need someone to speak for him. Yeah, Katie. Right. What St. Thomas Aquinas would say is, yes, they, were, they did have the Spirit, but not in the same way as the New Testament. Just like that paradigm we've seen all along, where there, there are real things in the Old Testament. There is, there is grace in a sense, but it's nothing like the New Testament where, where the fullness is given. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And yet recently I've just seen some certain things about angels 
right? Well, angel is just the Greek word angelos. Angel looks, it's cool to show you the Greek. Angelos. Angel just means messenger in Greek. But angels, the church is teaching, angels don't have bodies. They're spiritual. They could appear as if they had a body, like um, Raphael does in the book of Tobit, for instance, or Gabriel when he appears to Mary, or when Gabriel appears to Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. But they don't have bodies. They're spiritual beings. Um, so, so they could appear in different ways, but really all they are, they are the messengers of God. That's what the, the word means. But let's, let's keep rolling. Let's come back to that if there's more questions. Let, let's finish this because I think we can take confession tonight. God chooses Israel to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. That doesn't start in the Sermon on the Mount. God says that to Israel in the book of Isaiah. God uses people all over the place. He doesn't need them. But God works through people. My guess is that somehow you ended up in RCIA not because God spoke to you. Right? But because of someone, someone else. My guess is that you're here tonight because someone in your life touched you. Right? God works. He loves to work through people. Okay, that's the paradigm. God does it. He shares his authority all throughout the Old Testament. And you might think, well, that was an Old Testament thing. So here's your handouts. Look at your handouts on your back side where it says confession. We could do a bunch more quotes than this, but here's a couple of God sharing authority. So Matthew 10, 5, these 12, right, the 12 apostles, Jesus sent out, charging them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and preach as you go, saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without pay, give without pay. Here's the cool thing in this. This is Matthew 10. The first 10 chapters of Matthew's gospel, the first nine, guess what Jesus has been doing for nine chapters of Matthew's gospel? He's been preaching, saying the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the first thing he says when he begins the gospel in Matthew chapter four. He heals the sick he raises the dead, he cleanses lepers, and he casts out demons. So that verse in Matthew 10, all the things that he has been doing, he then gives to the apostles. Next one, 1 Corinthians 4. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. By the way, that word mystery, remember what that's translated into Latin as? I heard it. Be bold. Apparently not. Sacrament. When St. Jerome translates mysterion in Greek into Latin, it's translated as sacramentum. And that's what that meant in the early church. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required as stewards that they be found trustworthy. Here's a big one, 2 Corinthians 5. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And what did he do? He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's crazy. The mission of Jesus Christ in the world, remember we said it's communion, 
That could be, another word for that could be reconciliation. It's that man and God are reconciled to each other. That's the entire mission of Jesus Christ. St. Paul says that Jesus gave that mission to him and the other apostles. Crazy. Okay, I go on and on and on. In uh, John 17, Jesus says, As the Father sent me into the world, so do I send you. Right? In Matthew 28, he commissions the, the 12 apostles to go out and preach the gospel to the whole world. Right? He does this over and over and over. I put Matthew 16 on there, 16, 18. You are Peter. On this rock I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Right? Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Okay, you get the point. God shares authority. Right? All over the place. This is all over the pages of the New Testament. The early church knew this. The Jews knew this. The New Testament knows this. The Catholic Church has always known this. If you understand that, confession will not be a problem for you. Won't be a problem. So, so God gives that power. The last one we should read is the last one. Well, second to last one. So this is John 20, 20 through 23. This is after the resurrection. It's on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. People will say all the time, they'll say, hey, this is a great memorization verse. If you want to know your Bible, if you want to like have those verses all the time, which probably most of you don't, you don't have to. And it's okay not to. But if you want to know, if someone comes up to you and says, where in the Bible does it say that God can forgive, that a priest can forgive your sins? John 20, 21. Very explicitly. Very explicitly. Doesn't get much more explicit than this. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, right? Because it's after the resurrection and he still has his nail holes. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. Right? And just like Matt, or John 17 as the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. There's only two times in all of the Bible, right? Big book, 73 books in the Bible. There's only twice in the entire Bible where God ever breathes on someone. This is one of them. What's the other one? Yeah, in Genesis, when God breathes life into Adam. Why? God breathes life into Adam. And here, and the word in Hebrew for breath is the same word as spirit, ruah. Ruah in Hebrew means either spirit or breath. And so God pours the Spirit into Adam that he might live. And guess what? In the sacrament of confession, he breathes spiritual life into his church. Okay. So let's finish with this. <clears throat> so Father Brian, so why can't I just go in my room, right? If I, okay, so... I did something bad. I, why can't I just go in my room and tell God I'm sorry and do it that way? Has anybody ever wondered that? Right? 
and the rest of you liars. <laughs> this is why our church is growing, is because I insult people. <laughs> this is how it works. It's kind of like, the, what do they call that? Reverse psychology. <laughs> I would love it. Like, actually, I wouldn't love it, but it it sounds easier, right? It's scary. Let's just acknowledge something. People don't want to believe this, partially, not the only reason why, but partially because they don't want to go to confession because it's kind of scary, right? It's kind of scary. We'll talk about that. Let's come back to that. Do you have to go through a long list of things or can you sum it up? <laughs> the answer is more, yeah. You know why they're laughing? Because every one of them had the same question. <laughs> yeah. And really, just to preview it a little bit, it's more towards the former. But it's not to be scrupulous and be like, did you ever see the Goonies? Remember when Chunk gets caught? And they're like, we want you to confess everything. And he's like, when I was in the third grade, I pushed my sister down the stairs and I blamed it on the dog. Right? You don't have to remember everything. But, um, but you do have to say real things. Sometimes people will come to confession and they're like, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I guess I just haven't, you know, lived the way I'm supposed to live. <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> Right? Like, that's not confession. That's like, okay. So, why go to confession for a priest? Here's a couple reasons. We talked about this with Mass. Here's the thing. You can go, I, if, Father Brian, can I just go to my room and tell God I'm sorry? Yes, you can, and I think you should do that. But here's the thing. If Jesus is your God, if he is God, he gave the authority to priests to forgive sins. He also says that there in Matthew 16. He says it in Matthew 18. Paul, right, in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5, the apostles have the ministry of reconciliation, which is another name we give confession, right? He's given this. God does not give things to his church to sit on the shelf and go unused. The first reason he did this is if you, I've done this many times. Whenever I sin, I always do it. Well, for the bigger ones at least. Whenever I sin and I feel, I really feel it, I always confess it to God right there. Always. And then I go to confession to a priest. <laughs> and here's why. Because when I say it to God, that's great. That's a good thing. I will tell you, brothers and sisters, there is nothing on earth like hearing a priest ordained in the priesthood of Jesus Christ say to you and you hear with your ears, A priest say to you, I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is nothing like it. I feel like a million dollars when I go to confession. God gave you a body. He gave you ears. He made you not just to have a relationship with him, but also with the church. That's the first reason. Here's the second one. Here's my analogy for this. So this is I-25, obviously. So my last church up in North Glen, and we'll move this because in case it's blocking things. My last church, what happened was we had, we were right next to I-25. And our church, let's say, was right here. Here's I-H-M, Immaculate Heart of Mary. And 
let's just say hypothetically, um, you know, Lauren and I are standing right here. We're outside the church. And Lauren's like, she's like, hey, FP, what's up? I'm like, how you living? She's like, hey, I need to get to the other side of I-25. Well, I know that there is a pedestrian bridge right here that goes across the highway. And so I'm like, Lauren, there's, oh yeah, yeah, just ride, you know, you just have to walk like two blocks. There's a pedestrian bridge. If you just walk up to that bridge, I'll take you right across. And she's like, well, what if I don't want to go across? Can I just, I just want to go across. Right, Lauren says stuff like this to me all the time. It drives me nuts. And Lauren's like, she's like, FB, I just want to go across the highway. Just let me go, right? So if Lauren runs across I-25 and there'd be like four lanes of traffic, Frogger, remember Frogger? A lot of younger people are like, Mm-mm, what are you talking about? You missed out. So Lauren runs across I-25. Now here's my question to you. Is it possible that Lauren can make it? It is possible, right? It's possible. Is it smart? No. This is the Catholic Church's teaching on confession. Is that God, God has the authority to forgive sins. He is God. He can do whatever you want. And if you go into your room and confess your sins to God, do I know that God doesn't forgive that? No. But it does not say that anywhere in Scripture or anywhere in Christian tradition. But God promises us a pedestrian bridge. He promises us that. And he did it for a good reason. And so the purpose of, right, for those of you who are going to get baptized, if you get baptized, the blood, it's amazing. But what if I sin after that? Which most of us tend to, right? What if I do that? Well, that's why the Lord gave us the sacrament of confession. Um, you should go to confession, and we'll, we'll, we'll probably talk a little bit more about this next week just to make sure we've covered it. We will talk about, I know what you're all thinking, but what do I do, right? Like, do I have to name everything? Like, Father Brian, I was baptized when I was, you know, two or one or six months old. Like, am I going to be like, well, you know, like, when I was four, I, did, I pushed my brother down the stairs. We'll talk about all those practical questions, but right now I just want to do theology. Um, and I'm going to forget what I was going to say. Oh, here's what the church says. When you go to confession, you must confess what are called mortal sins. Yeah, there's three conditions. Let's do that really quick. And we're going to cover it again when we get to the moral life. There's mortal sins and there's venial sins. St. John actually talks about this. I think it's 1 John. I have to look it up. Um, Very easy mortal sin, and we all know this, right? Like, you don't have to confess. Like, I will tell you, I don't think I've ever confessed breaking the speed limit. Right? Now, if I was breaking the speed limit by going 120 and a 35, I should probably confess that. 
Right? We all know there's a difference between like little sins and big sins. So the church, there's three conditions for a mortal sin. It has to be grave. And what that means is, that's a roughly translated into big. That's what grave means. You have to have full knowledge. So you have to know it's wrong, right? It can't be like, um, I don't know. I didn't know it was wrong to smoke crack. Like, I had no idea. Right? I don't know. It's hard to think of, of mortal sins people didn't know were wrong. But if you didn't have full knowledge, it can't be a mortal sin. And it has to be, you have to have full freedom. So if you did something and you, you didn't really freely choose that, right, then it can't be a grave sin. It can't be a, or a mortal sin. It can't be mortal. So venial sins are any other sin that doesn't fulfill all three of those. My phone's over there. Okay, we'll punt on questions till next time because I've gone over. The last, last thing tonight is that this coming, this coming Wednesday, we don't have class because it's Ash Wednesday, which I, stresses me out, people. That means Easter's like six weeks away or something like that. It's like seven weeks, I don't know. Okay, really quick. Lent is the time of preparation leading to Easter. The, church, the Catholic Church invented Lent for you. It was invented in the very ancient church for people who were becoming Christians. And then it was so beneficial to them that it was extended to everyone in the church. So that's what we're going to talk about. So what it means for you, so Ash Wednesday, next Wednesday, Ash Wednesday is a day of fasting and penance. So I really encourage you, this is a time, and what is that about? It's about, and we'll talk about this in two weeks, but it's, that's too late for next week. So fasting is about, it's about remembering the, your sins, about changing your life. It's about being intentional, right? It's like, you know how we do New Year's resolutions for our bodies? And everybody's like, I'm going to lose 10 pounds in, in a month, and then they quit. Lent is about getting your spiritual life in order. It's about being intentional and saying, Easter's coming. I don't want to just be controlled by the world. I'm going to intentionally get ready for that. So we fast, we deny ourselves so that we can love God. So Ash Wednesday, you're supposed to fast. What does that mean? The, the technical rule is you're only supposed to have, one, you can have one meal that's full and two other meals that don't exceed another full meal, I think is a rule. But here's the thing, that's totally lame. That's totally lame. That is totally lame. That's totally lame. It's totally lame. Everyone always says to me, Father Brian, I'm not good at fasting. That's the point. It's supposed to hurt. It does hurt. It's good for you. Here's what I recommend to you. Here's what I do, because I'm a baby. I'm, I'm terrible at fasting too. What I do on Ash Wednesday is I just don't eat until dinner. And then I make a simple dinner. There is no meat either. Okay? And why do we do that? Just really quickly on that. I know I'm over. Just hang with me. No meat. Why? Because we can do penances by ourselves. We can say, I'm a selfish person. I'm going to deny my selfishness so I can become a better person. But this is something we do together. Christianity is about being together. So all across the world, 
Catholics all over the world do not eat meat on Ash Wednesday, and they fast. There's also no meat on Fridays of Lent. So every Friday during Lent, we remember that Jesus died on the cross for us, and we just, it's not that hard of a sacrifice. But you make a sacrifice, not because, it's not about meat. It's about he died on the cross. And on Friday, you remember that, you don't eat meat because none of us do on Fridays. This is why McDonald's literally added uh, the fish sandwiches to their menu. Not kidding. They added it for Catholics. Yep, fish doesn't count as meat if we cut by some weird logic. I don't know. You can eat fish. Okay, Lent is, and last thing, and, I, and I'll let you guys go. It's traditional in Catholicism to give up something for Lent. The point is not that you would look better or that you would like have like more money at the end of the Lent. The point is that you, you can only love God. What St. Augustine says is that our love of ourselves competes with the love of God. And if I'm so in love with myself that I need to be comfortable and please myself all the time, I can't really love God. And so it's traditional in Lent to deny yourself something, not just for the sake of denying something. The famous thing is that people give up chocolate. And really quick, Brock's dad always says this. He says, if you get to heaven, right, there'll be all these great saints and they'll be like, oh my gosh, like, like this, this saint, he was a martyr. And he, St. Isaac jokes, you had your fingers chewed off. Like, that was amazing. Like, and he'll look, look at you and he'll be like, Brian, what did you do to get to heaven? And, and he says, well, I gave up chocolate for Lent. And I almost made it. <laughs> and I love that line. Do something radical. This is about the love of God. You can give up alcohol. You can give up meat. You can give up radio in your car. You could do something extra. Sugar, you could give up, or you could do something extra. You could say, instead of giving something up, I'm going to pray the rosary every day. But it's an intentional time that you say, Lord, Easter's coming when you redeem the world. I want to prepare my heart, my mind, my soul. So no class on Ash Wednesday. You do not have to go to Mass that day, but it's recommended. You'll get ashes on your forehead, and it's a reminder that you're going to die. The priest will say, remember that you are, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And if you remember that you're going to die, it helps you to live a better life. Right? Because most of my life I'm like, I just want gelato and pasta and I want to be comfortable and I want everyone to love me and I want everything to be perfect. And then I remember that I'm going to die and go before the throne of God and be judged. And I remember that I'm like, I can give up some things because I want to be the right kind of man. Okay, Gina. Anyone can receive ashes. If you're not in the church yet, you can receive ashes. Yes. We will have it after the morning mass. There's an eight o'clock mass. We'll have it after. We don't have other ones scheduled though. So yeah. Yeah, there is an evening, but check our website on Sunday. Or on Sunday, we'll announce. It. I forget what time, and I'll get it wrong. I'll be in trouble. Okay. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. All right, thanks, everybody. We will see you uh, Sunday, hopefully.